I'm sure that all of us at different times in our lives have asked different versions of this question. Why me? Many of us have probably asked this when there's things going on in our life that are especially difficult. Uh, when, when we get really sick, when, when we're mistreated, when we're abused, when someone we love dies, it's very natural to ask, why me? There's probably others of us have, at different times who have asked this question when things are especially good. When something that almost seems too good to happen, what, what, what did I do to deserve this? How, you know, why is it that that person said yes when I asked to marry her? Why me? You know, maybe if we're prone to asking this question when things are really good or really bad, really, we should probably ask it when things are just kind of okay. <laughs> right? When things are okay, we don't ask this question because we buy into the illusion of our own control. When things are just kind of okay, we think it's because we are keeping things okay. We're not. Maybe we should ask this all the time. Well, David, the second king of Israel, he lived a real roller coaster of a life. When, as, as we've read through First and Second Samuel, David was chosen while still a, a young lad, a, a boy of who knows what age, but he was chosen to be the next king of Israel when he was a complete nobody. I'm sure he asked, why me? His family was asking, why him? Then he, he, he like launched to superstardom when he killed a giant by a rock from his sling hitting the perfect spot and suddenly he was like a national hero. Maybe he asked, why me? But the good times didn't last because the roller coaster took a nosedive and then David spent some period of years running for his life from the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul. He was hunted constantly by Saul. In one point we read in 1 Samuel, David said to Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend, he said, there is but one step between me and death. If we read some of the rest of David's Psalms, we can see this question sort of sprinkled throughout. Why me? In fact, he is the one who first wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David survived being hunted. Things turned again. Saul was killed in battle. David was made king over all of Israel with near unanimous support. He kicked the Jebusites out of this hilltop city called Jerusalem. He made that the brand new capital of his nation. God showed up through a new prophet 
and gave David some unbelievably, incredibly awesome promises. I'm going to make a royal lineage out of you, David. I'm going to deliver the special king through you who's going to reign forever and ever and ever. We call that position Christ, Messiah. Then David defeated all of Israel's enemies. And from that mountaintop experience and period of David's life, David asks yet again, why me? In fact, that's what we're going to read today. We're going to read David ask and answer this question. The closing four chapters of the book of 2 Samuel aren't chronological. They, they're kind of tagged on at the end. Where this chapter fits into the story is right where I just described. It's David at his like highest, when things are the best. And we'll see uh, how we know that in just one second. And David's going to look around at all of the amazingly incredible things that have happened to him. And he's asked this question, why me? And he's going to answer it for us. And before we even get there, I'm going to tell you that answer might disturb you. Let's dive in and see what we learn. This is, we're going to read a poem today. It's a rather long poem, like 50 verses worth. So uh, we're not going to fine-tooth comb this thing. I thought about chopping it in and doing it over several weeks, but we're going to get the, the general gist and see again, David, ask and answer this question. It starts this way. This is Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, which is not part of the poem or the, the song, really. It's a psalm. So we, re- we read this, and David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So that's how we know David wrote this after he's defeated all of Israel's enemies and he's sort of, he's literally on the mountaintop experience. Now the song itself begins this way in verse two. He said, and here comes the song, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. If this is a song, and it is, it's not one of those songs that starts like slowly and softly and builds to the big finish. This is more like a song that's, that just dives in with the power chords and the, uh, and the high note right from the beginning. David just erupts in praise. David is going to be asking from a positive sense this question, why me? Why have all this, why has all this awesome stuff happened to me? And throughout this 50-verse song, he's, he's going to leave no room for anyone to believe the reason this good stuff has happened to me is because of me. Because I've been strong enough, wise enough, um, whatever enough. Uh, what, so he, and he leaps in. It's like David thinks of every metaphor he can think of that communicates safety. 
and he throws them all in the first four verses. God's my rock, my fortress, deliverer, he's my refuge, my, all of it. God is the one who has saved me physically from my enemies. Next, David is going to explain why his praise is so sort of loud. Starting in verse 5. For or because the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave, Sheol, surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. So, here David says, the, my praise was so loud because my situation was so bleak. It's like David says, you know how I told Jonathan that one time, I am but one step from death. David says, what I didn't know when I said that back then is that wouldn't be the last time I'm on that step. David lived on that step for years. But where he writes this poem from, this song from, he's been saved out of all that. And he looks back and he's like, man, I was doomed about a hundred times. I had both feet in the grave. It was like I was in the wave of destruction and death. I think as Christians, we can learn something here. Our praise should be loud because our situation was so bleak. And God has saved us. He's rescued us. We're going to move on next. David is going to try in his imagination to picture what must it look like up there when God decides to help someone down here. Starting in verse 8, Then, back then, the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because God was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and he came down with thick darkness under his feet, and he rode on a cherub and flew, and he appeared on the wings of the wind. And he made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Man, that is David at his poetic best right there. Here's what he is picturing. When God decided to go to work to save me, like there was nothing that could stop him. Now, we've read David's life story, a lot of it, as we've gone through First and Second Samuel. And when, when we saw David in tight spots and get out of tight spots, we didn't see any of this stuff. What did it look like when David got out of a tight spot? It looked like he, he wound his sling up and let a rock go, and it just happened to hit a giant in the perfect spot. It looked like When Saul threw his spear at David, it just happened to miss David by a few inches and 
stick in the wall instead of sticking in David. It looked like that one time King Saul and his men had David and his men almost surrounded around this hill. And at the very last second, a messenger showed up and told King Saul, hey, the Philistines have attacked back home. You've got to get back here. And he just quit. It looked like coincidences. What David is doing here is he's, he's just trying to picture what must it look like when God decides I'm about to rescue one of mine. And what David is reminding himself is this. No matter what I was up against, it wasn't nearly as scary as God is. No matter how big that giant was, how close that army was, how sharp that spear was, none of it holds a candle to to the scariest thing in the whole universe, which is God. Let's move on. David's been talking about how he was saved physically from his enemies. The result of that is great relief, starting in verse 17. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is about, this little section is about the relief David felt or feels from being saved from all of that. David says, he, God lifted me out of the, all that scary stuff. And look where he put me. He brought me forth into a broad place. You know what that means? We can understand a broad place. You want to understand a broad place? Go right out there and look around. Okay. <laughs> Here's what David says. It's like I lived my whole life not knowing what was lurking around the next corner. Someone was always trying to kill me. Somebody always hated me. It's like God took me up out of that and put me in this flat, beautiful prairie. It's hard to hide around corners when there's no corners, right? David, this, this is the relief of the security he feels where he's at. And then David says this. This is how he ends the first half of the song right here. He says, God rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. He loved me. David says, there really can't be any other explanation about how I got here. When I look back over how many times my goose was so cooked, like the fork was stuck in that thing a long time ago. There's no other explanation about how I got here. This, somehow the Lord found delight in me and he decided to save me and get me here. And that brings us to the big question. This is when David says, okay, so why me? David knows I didn't get myself here. God got me here. Why me? I mentioned this a minute ago. How he answers that question is going to feel uncomfortable. 
Because you know what his answer is? David comes up with an answer. Why me? Why did God save me? Why did God do all this good stuff for me? You know what he's going to say? Because I'm righteous. Let's read it. Here's the reason for God's delight. David's righteousness. He says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands. He has repaid me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I've not acted wickedly against my God. For all his ordinances were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him. And I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, this is why the Lord has repaid me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness before his eyes. With the kind God, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, those who are turned away from what's right, you show yourself astute. And you save an afflicted people, but your eyes are on the the haughty, the arrogant, whom you do not like. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. From the mountaintop on which David literally sits as he writes this great song, he asks the question, how, why me, why has God done this for me? And his conclusion is, Because God rewards the righteous. What do you think about that? I'll tell you, I don't think it's a bad conclusion for David to have drawn, given the information David has at his disposal. The scripture of David's day was primarily, if not entirely, like the law and Genesis. Um. And David knew there were passages in the... The law is where God gives Israel the rules, right? Here's the rules. Here's the stuff you should do. Here's the stuff you shouldn't do. And then God says in the law, stuff like this. From Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says to Israel, If you obey all these ordinances and you're careful to do them, the Lord your God will faithfully keep covenant with you as He promised your ancestors. Here's what will happen. He will love and bless you. He'll make you numerous. He'll bless you with many children, with the produce of your soil, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the offspring of your cattle, and the young of your flocks in the land which he promised your ancestors to give you. You'll be blessed beyond all peoples. There'll be no barrenness among you or your livestock. The Lord will protect you from all sickness, and you will not experience any of the terrible diseases that you knew in Egypt. Instead, God will give all that bad stuff on the bad guys. David knows this. So David, at the highest of his high points, looks around at all the awesome stuff that has happened to him and says, why me? And he goes, I guess I deserve it. I mean, you read it. It's what he says. Now, David does not claim to be sinlessly perfect in this section. And David says lots of stuff that is generally true, even for us. 
Here's what David says. Um, when David says, I kept like God's statutes before me, um, and he says, um, I was blameless before God. I did not depart from them, and I'm blameless before God. Don't read that as David saying, I'm sinlessly perfect. I've never messed up, not even once. That's not what David would say. That David always kept the law before him means there was never a time in David's life where he read God's behavioral commands and went, oh, who could ever live by that old-timey, mamby-pamby junk? That stuff's too old-fashioned. It's just not for me. There's never a time when David threw it behind his back. David, he loved the law even when he failed to keep the law. He knew what God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. And then David said, I kept myself blameless according to those things. Hear that word correctly. Blamelessness. There are two ways to be blameless in your relationships before God and before other people. One is to never do anything wrong and then no one can blame you because you haven't done anything wrong. To which I will say, good luck with that. Okay? Now, that's not reality. So if you want to be blameless in your relationships, I always say the same thing when this word comes up. You, are, you, you will never be blameless by convincing everyone tirelessly that they, you didn't do anything wrong and they shouldn't accuse you. And actually, they're the reason why you had to. You don't get blameless by wearing people out, convincing them you haven't done anything wrong. That doesn't make us blameless. That makes us hard to be around. Blamelessness comes when I mess up owning it, identifying my sin as sin, confessing that and figuring out what does repentance look like. That's where blamelessness comes from, even according to the law. So David has said, in general, I've been a really good dude. And at the point he wrote this, he was right. But still, Oh, also in general, David said, this is true. That God gave us a whole bunch of behavioral commands in this book is not because he hates us and doesn't want us to have fun. It's not. It's because he invented life and he knows the way it works best. It's because he knows the more obedient we are to what he said is right, the better our life will go. And he also knows there's consequences when we fail in general. Our lives get all jammed up when we decide we know better. So in general, there is more blessing even in this Christian life when I am obedient and there are more problems when I am disobedient. And that really shouldn't be a point of contention. Obedience is still important. And by the way, if you don't like the Old Testament behavioral commands, don't open the New Testament. 
Because there's about twice as many behavioral commands in the New Testament than there is in the Old Testament, even though it's shorter. So in some ways, you can read through this and kind of, I don't know, in some ways explain away what David really does say and just say, well, in general, David is, is saying a general truth. But listen to this again. Verse 25, therefore, this is why the Lord has just repaid me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness before his eyes. He looks around at all the good stuff that has happened to him and he goes, yes, about right. Would you ever say that out loud? Hang on to that for a minute. We'll come back. From there, David moves on and he talks about his response after he was rescued because of his righteousness. This section reads this way. For by you, I can run upon a troop. By my God, I can leap over uh, the wall of a city. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? Who is a rock besides our God? Who, God is my strong fortress. He sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like uh, hinds feet or deer's feet. He sets me on high places which are safe. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. By the way, you are pretty strong if you can bend your bow if the bow is made of bronze. Again, he's a good writer. Verse 36, you have also given me the shield of your salvation and your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and I did not turn back until they were consumed and I have devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet because you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me and I destroyed those who hated me. Verse 42, they looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And then I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as the head of nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. Here's what David says in that big section. It's like, all right, God saved me. I was doomed so many times. He saved me, I guess because I'm righteous. And he says, but let me tell you how I'm going to respond since God has saved me and put me where he's put me. I still give him all of the credit. It's still not me. He gave me the strength to do all this stuff. He gave me the military mind that I used to defeat my enemies. He made me an international superstar where foreign people who I know hate me pretend to obey me. They have to pretend they like me because I'm David. And they're scared to make me angry. God did that. And he did. He was the most powerful man in that section of the world for a time. And now David's going to conclude his psalm the same way he started, just by praising the Lord for all this. He says, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be God, the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me 
who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, that is why I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. And I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and David's descendants forever. And thus ends the psalm. It is David's attempt to answer this question, why me? But man, is it troubling. Because David's major premise is, again, it's this. God is so awesome. Let me tell you the ways he's been awesome toward me. But when I think, why me? Here's the answer. I'm getting rewarded for my righteousness. Here's here's the problem with this song. David asks, why me? Well, the Lord rewards those who are righteous. He says so right in his law. But now our question is, so where does this leave David and us? You know, I mentioned the last few chapters are not chronological. I think we should ask this question. Why would whoever compiled this book, maybe it was David, at the end of his life, why would they put this song at, at this point in David's life? I can tell you, it hits way different at this point in David's life than if we had read it back in chapter 8 before David did anything wrong that we knew of. Because the problem with David is we've read the last 12 chapters. And if David's premise is correct... God is good to those who are good and God is bad to those who are bad. Where does that leave David now? Because if you know the last 12 chapters of David's story, does does David seem like a guy who could write this with a straight face and a hopeful heart? The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands because I haven't done anything wrong? Does that sound like David, the adulterer, the murderer, the sneak, the one who loved his murderous, rotten son, Absalom, more than he loved his nation? And it gets worse. (laughs) Because we have another problem with David at this point. I mean, what happens to David now after David has fallen off the mountain? And how about this? Why is David still king if that's the way God works? The covenant that David lived under, here's the part where it's it's is a package deal. The law of God is not a menu. It's not a la carte where you can pick what you like and throw out the rest. Jesus' half-brother, James, he said it this way, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Well, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't sound right, does it? How can that be true? If you you were able to keep the whole law and just stumbled at just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. You know why? Because it's a package deal. It's a covenant. It's the whole thing. If you're in a business covenant with someone, 
So you, you, you made a business partnership and you got caught stealing money. Could you say to your business partner, I only stole out of the accounts receivable. I didn't steal out of any of the rest of any of the accounts or anything. No, that doesn't make any sense. You're either faithful to your agreement or you're not. That's the law. What God said in the law was true. Here's the rules. Keep it. I'll bless you. You'll be righteous. And I, and I always bless the righteous. Here's the problem for us. We're not righteous. The Bible says this three different times. There is no one righteous. Not even one. That's a problem. Because what God said is still true. God only blesses the righteous. And God always punishes the wicked. So we got ourselves a problem. How do we make sense of this poem given our problem? Sometimes we sing songs around here that, that talk about a cleft in the rock. Right? Like rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in the... He hideth my soul in the cleft in the rock. Rock is one of David's favorite nicknames for whom? God. God is the rock. Read through that poem we just read again. He calls him rock three or four times. And the rest of his psalms, he does it all the time. When we sing rock of ages, cleft for me, it's a verb. Okay? How much force would it take to rip a cleft in a giant hunk of granite or whatever that rock is? Would it take a lot of force to do that? Okay. It, this is a metaphor for the cross. The rock is God. Jesus Christ was God and is God. And, <clears throat> and at the cross, the rock of ages, like the rock, God my rock, our fortress, the righteous one was cleft, had enough force, pushed down on him that it's like the rock was split which makes a safe place for God to hide people inside of the rock. Here's why that's such an effective metaphor. The cross was where the one, the only one who ever was righteous on his own, was put right under the most massive and scary force in the universe, which is the wrath of God. You know that section in this in this poem where we read about God firing arrows and fire from his mouth and smoke from his nostrils that was all pointed at the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. It was poured out on him and he died terribly. But he died like the rock of ages. Was, there was a cleft split in the rock so that you and I, we can hide inside the shelter of the one who was split under that wrath for us. He, he hides my soul in the cleft of the rock and he covers me there with his hand. Do you know what he covers me from? The wrath of God. Do you know what I need and you need to be saved from? God. 
and there is but one shelter, Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the miracle of all miracles happens. (laughs) You know what happens to you in God's eyes? You become righteous. Not, not, uh, not based on anything you have done. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from somewhere else. It gets put onto us so that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous. You bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He looked to God like he committed all of your sins. When you believe in him, you look to him like you lived Jesus' perfect life. Now let's make sense of this poem. I don't have time to go back through the whole thing again. But you know what happens once you understand? Once you understand the cross, you can read back through that whole poem, whole poem and the troubling parts aren't troubling anymore. They're incredible. They're amazing. Because once you, through faith in Jesus Christ, bear his righteousness, here's what you, look, here's what you can say. When you stand on the mountaintop, I've been saved. I've been saved. You can say, he rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. The question is, why did he delight in you? Because I bear Jesus' righteousness. He can look at you and say, behold, my son or my daughter in whom I am well pleased. You can say, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. God executed vengeance for me. Just where did he execute vengeance? On his son instead of on me. It's It's not I got what I deserve, like David was saying. I get what he deserved because he got what I deserved. And so... He brought me out from my enemies. It's not the Philistines. My enemies are my sin, my death, and God himself. Because make no mistake, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, me and God would be enemies. He rescued me from the violent man. There is an enemy of terrible violence who would love to destroy me, and he can no longer get at me. You know why? Because I'm righteous based on the blood of Christ, not the behavior of Matt Maxwell. Because I'm hid in the cleft of the rock. That is why, therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name because my situation was so dire and, and you rescued me so securely That's why my praise is so loud. So now we can ask and answer, why me? Why would God love me? Why me? Because of him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, um, I, I did not plan for this sermon to be given on Communion Sunday, but it couldn't be any more perfect Because we read what David said and it feels so troubling to us because we know what a sinner David was. 
But David said, I'm being rewarded because of my righteousness. And God, because of the cross, we can say that. That one day when we stand before you, we will be rewarded because of righteousness that we have. Just we didn't earn it. It was a gift. And it was a gift that, that comes to those who believe that the rock of ages was cleft for me. Thank you that we can hide ourselves in thee. God, as, as the guys come forward and we, and we celebrate the communion we have with you, what we celebrate is the righteousness we bear before the one who requires righteousness. Thank you that there was, there was a man who kept the whole law, yet he became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of that man, our Lord, our King, Jesus. Lord, as the bread comes around, help us remember what Jesus did to win our righteousness in his name. Amen. Maybe over the course of your life, you can think of a time when you were in a really tight spot, when you were really scared. Imagine if, if, however that turned out, if God had just shown up and decided personally to rescue you from whatever that terribly scary situation was. That's what we're celebrating right now, times like infinity. We're in the scariest situation ever. We are headed to a road where we're going to stand before a holy God who requires righteousness. And through giving us his son, Jesus Christ, he rescued us from his wrath. That's why we come here. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we do this, this thing with little squares of bread just to remind ourselves regularly our situation was so dire and we were rescued so completely and what Jesus asks is that as often as we do this we remember him our father while we remember and celebrate our rescue, we do not want to miss remembering the cost and the price. Your precious son was destroyed under your wrath that we might be saved from it. So we remember the blood that was required to buy our freedom from your justice. As the cups come around, we remember his blood in your name. Amen. Oh, that will be that will be our song forever and ever and ever. How amazing is my Savior's love for me when we meet him one day in his glorified 
state. We see his righteousness and we know that is the righteousness we bear in some way. We will look around at all that awaits us for eternity, forever and ever. And I think we will say, this seems about right. Because he paid every price that needed to be paid and he gave me a blindingly white righteousness, whiter than snow, by which I will be judged. Is that good news? That is great news. And so we do this in remembrance of him.